0: Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Brian Leiter, John P. Wilson Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Law, Philosophy, and Human Values at the University of Chicago. And he's here to talk to us about religious toleration. Brian Leiter, welcome back to Elucidations.
1: Thanks very much for having me again. I'm looking forward to it.
0: So I thought we might begin by asking about a provocatively titled paper of yours called Why Tolerate Religion? Is that to suggest maybe that religion shouldn't be tolerated? Or, um, yeah, where, where do we go from there exactly?
1: Right. So the, the paper which appeared in a journal called Constitutional Commentary in 2008 called Why Tolerate Religion was titled To Provoke, but its answer was much more mundane in many ways. The, the question I was actually interested in uh, was whether there was any reason to tolerate matters of religious conscience as distinct from other kinds of matters of conscience. So the ultimate answer to the question is yes, of course, there's lots of reasons to tolerate religion, but there aren't any religion-specific reasons for doing that. The reasons for thinking that the law should provide special protections for liberty of conscience are good and compelling reasons. What struck me is that if you look at, say, all the Western constitutions, They all single out religious conscience for a special kind of protection. The Canadian Charter mentions liberty of conscience. Some of the the European ones mention liberty of conscience, but all the litigation, all the decisions is about claims of religious conscience. And we know what the historical reason for that is, right? That is, we know about the catastrophes that grew out of religious conflict in Europe that led people to think it was really important to bring these kinds of conflicts to an end. I wanted to ask sort of a a moral philosopher's, political philosopher's question about this. That is, if we were starting de novo, right, drafting a new constitution, would we want to follow the lead of all these constitutions in terms of saying religious conscience is special in a way that other matters of moral conscience aren't special? And the conclusion of the paper is, no, there is nothing special about matters of religious conscience that should lead us to think that the law should provide a special kind of protection for that, those forms of conscience as against any other.
2: So your view is not that, in fact religion does not deserve toleration, but simply that there's no special reason to tolerate religion over and above any other matter of conscience. Why is that exactly? As you've said, the tradition sees religion as a special case. This is a very widespread moral and legal view. So on what basis do you challenge that?
1: I think to answer the, the question that, that I try to pose here, we do have to say something about what's distinctive of religious conscience matters of religious conscience, to figure out whether the best moral arguments for toleration of conscience or the best moral arguments for liberty of conscience would be especially concerned with matters of religious conscience. So one part of my project is to go down the road that philosophers and especially courts and legal scholars hate to go down, which is trying to say something about what's distinctive of religion and matters of religious conscience. But it seems to me unavoidable for trying to answer the, the question that I've posed. So my proposal is that we can think of religion, religious belief, as being distinguished by two characteristics. And I think it's very important in this regard not to tie it up with theism, okay? Because for one thing, and the courts have sometimes moved in this direction, But there are religions that are not theistic in the Judeo-Christian sense, right? Yet surely they have to count as religions for purposes of figuring out what are matters of religious conscience. So I suggest the distinctive features of religious belief are twofold. On the one hand, in every religion, there are some beliefs that are held to be, as I put it, insulated from reasons and evidence. And by insulated from reasons and evidence, I mean insulated from the ordinary standards of reasons and evidence that we deploy in common sense and that we find in the sciences. And I just accept the Quinean view that there's a continuity of epistemic standards between common sense and the sciences. When I say that there are some beliefs that are part of any religion that are insulated from reasons and evidence, I'm trying to capture the familiar idea that, At some point in every religion, there are some beliefs that are held on faith, right? And so this is an attempt to cash out the notion of held on faith means insulated from the standards of reasons and evidence that we would ordinarily bring to bear on beliefs before deciding whether it was worth holding them. So that's one component. But there's a second component which is, in my view, equally essential. Namely that at least some of the beliefs in the religion are taken by the believer to impose categorical demands upon action. That is, things that the believer must do, come what may. Okay? Now, it might arguably be a kind of as-if categoricity, right? insofar as the categoricity is tied to the idea of reward in the afterlife or something. Okay? That doesn't matter for my purposes. The point is, the believer here and now in this world experiences the demands as demands that must be conformed with. And it's that special conjunction, namely of beliefs insulated from ordinary standards of reasons and evidence, and some of which are experienced as imposing categorical demands on action, that I take to be distinctive of religion. And of course, it also explains, the second part in particular, explains why religion comes into conflict with the law. Because... The law says you can and can't do various kinds of things, and sometimes it says you can and can't do things that the religious believer feels they absolutely must or must not do, right? And so this is why the conflicts arise. You know, it's worth saying, right, clearly a lot of religious belief in practice is what you might call casual, right? But the thing about casual religious belief in practice is that it shouldn't pose the tough legal problems about liberty of conscience, because the casual believer doesn't necessarily take the religion as imposing categorical demands on action. Therefore, the casual believer is less likely to get run into these conflicts with the law, right? Casual believer will just yield because after all their version of religion is, you know, celebrate two or three religious holidays a year and that's about all it amounts to, right? Make grandma happy.
2: So you mentioned that your strategy of providing a definition of religion is one that's not generally been popular amongst philosophers and those in the legal profession. Possibly one of the reasons for that is that a definition invites counterexamples. So I thought I might try a couple out on you. Please. So to take, say, the first characteristic that you've identified, insulation from reasons and evidence, one might imagine either that that lets in too much or that it doesn't let in enough. In the second case, I can remember having, when I was young, a book called It All Makes Sense, and this was about Christianity and the Gospels, and it was aimed to show how they all made sense, how if you looked at the historical record, if you imposed precisely normal standards of reason and evidence, you would find that everything the Gospel claims were true. There was this familiar formula of Jesus is either mad, bad, or the Son of God, right? And you're supposed to go through the options and see how it's got to be the latter. So it looks first like there are at least some ways in which people hold religious belief. We might not like them, we might not hold it in that way ourselves, but at least some where standards of reason and evidence are supposed to be employed. So that would be one case. And then a second case of the definition letting in too much might be to say, well, is it really the case that when we talk about people's beliefs about meaning in life ultimate value whether or not they're religious it's pretty rare for people to bring to bear strong standards of reason and evidence to their beliefs about the meaning of life what what's worth doing so that this wouldn't be a characteristic of just religious belief in question but really any belief about those things that matter most so what would your response to those kinds of counterexamples be
1: so on the first one, as I discuss in uh, in one of the papers, and your example is a nice one of this, this problem, right, there are what you might call intellectualist traditions in religious thought, right, in which the attempt is made to show that religious belief, in fact, answers to ordinary standards of reasons and evidence. In our own time, I think the best-known contemporary form of this is the the debate about intelligent design. Right? That is the strategy of argument deployed by the proponents of intelligent design is to say it's not a religious hypothesis in the sense of being a hypothesis insulated from standards and evidence. It's actually a hypothesis that is supposed to follow from the standards that the biologists themselves recognize. Right? So it's claimed that there are certain phenomena that are irreducibly complex Ergo, they have to be explained by something other than the ordinary mechanisms of natural selection. And and the story about the book you had in your childhood is, in a way, is a simpler version of that. It's a way of saying, we'll deploy the ordinary standards of historical evidence, right, in order to show that the things that we're asking you to believe, in fact, are supported by that kind of evidence. Now, I think there's two things we can say about this, or maybe three things we can say about this intellectualist strategy. First thing to observe is, I think it's doubtful how much of actual religious belief and practice it really explains. That is, I take it there is a reason that religious believers frequently appeal to faith. And it's precisely because, even if there's an intellectualist story to be told, right, most religious believers really do want at least some of the beliefs insulated. Right? That is, they are going to be held no matter what no matter what reasons and evidence come forward. More cynically, and this is certainly, I'm afraid, is the view I'm inclined to, I think most of these intellectualist stories are pretty clearly post-hoc rationalizations for beliefs that are held on other grounds. And they are certainly attempts to try to suggest that religious belief stands on a continuum with beliefs about mid-sized physical objects and, and the structure of the natural world. But it's not the case that any of the proponents of these views actually ever come to the conclusion that, whoops, the evidence doesn't really support it. Okay? So in that sense, I find it a, a little hard to take these two seriously. They're either not representative of what's typically characteristic of religious belief among most religious believers, or they're not really committed to the pursuit of reasons and evidence where reasons and evidence would actually lead. As to the second counterexample you raise, I'd have to hear a little bit more about what's involved in the idea of beliefs about the meaning in life. Remember, on my account of what's distinctive of religion, there are two conditions. Beliefs that are insulated from reasons and evidence, at least some of them, and some of the beliefs are taken to impose categorical demands on action. I don't deny that there are lots of beliefs that are insulated from reasons and evidence, but many of those beliefs may not be imposing categorical demands on action. I mean, let me invite you to perhaps fill out the example, if you have a particular case in mind that would allow us to assess whether or not the the conditions are met.
2: Sure, so maybe let's imagine I'm John Lennon, and let's imagine that the song Imagine in fact captures something about my view of the world. So, there's no heaven, above us only sky, Let's say I also think that love is the answer, right? And I think that we should give peace a chance. Right. And these are beliefs that I have that absolutely command me to do certain things. Like, I am never going to go to war. What, I, will, I will indeed come into conflict with the law if the law wants me to go to war. But these are beliefs that I neither have for religious reasons nor, it seems, have normal standards of evidence or argument for them, if we're thinking about that in terms of the natural sciences and common sense. So perhaps John Lennon.
1: Okay, good. Uh, John Lennon. Uh, (laughs) Let's fine-tune the John Lennon case a little bit, right? Picking up in particular on your suggestion that someone with the John Lennon view about the meaning of life is never going to go to war, right? So the, the John Lennon view is a kind of severe form of pacifism, right? such that it's absolutely out of the question, even if conscripted, to in fact comply with that sort of rule, right? And now the question is, what kinds of beliefs is the pacifism based on? Now, all I sort of heard here was, you know, all you need is love, right? it's some kind of, say, moral imperative, right, that our fundamental obligation is to love everyone else. Good, okay. So uh, for those listening at home, Mark is nodding his head to agree it here. So let's pursue the example that way, because I do think, and now we can generalize the possible counterexample. What about morality quite generally? What about moral views quite generally? Certainly on a common understanding, say Kant's most obviously moral views about the purpose of life, what we have to do in life, and so on, impose categorical demands on action. But now we get to a very tricky question on the insulations from reasons and evidence side. And I think we need to forget John Lennon because I I don't think he had a reflective enough (laughs) view about these matters for us to know where he stood on this. Whether or not you think moral views are insulated from reasons and evidence is going to turn on what you think is the right metaphysics, epistemology, and semantics of morality. Okay? And this is a hard question, but let's take a couple of possible views. If you're a certain kind of naturalistic moral realist, take Peter Railton, Richard Boyd, Cornell Realism as it used to be called, then you actually think moral beliefs do in fact answer to reasons and evidence, and moral epistemology is just continuous with scientific epistemology. So if that's your view, there's no issue here. Morality isn't like religion because it's not, in fact, insulated from reasons and evidence. Now, what if you're a non-cognitivist, right? What if you're a non-cognitivist, anti-realist of some kind? You think that there are no, as a metaphysical matter, no objective moral truths or facts, and moral judgments are mere expressions of attitudes or feelings of some suitably complex kind. Okay, the crucial thing to notice here is that if you're a non-cognitivist, right, then your moral judgments don't in fact express beliefs. And since they don't express beliefs, the question of whether the beliefs are insulated from reasons and evidence just doesn't even arise because there are no beliefs here. Whereas one could, I suppose, propose a fully non-cognitivist interpretation of religion, but I'm inclined to think that significant parts of uh, religious discourse should in fact be interpreted as expressing beliefs and not simply attitudes.
0: Now, would you say the same thing applies to metaphysical beliefs, such as the belief that I have free will? Is it the same thing? Is it going to have to be either the case that I think metaphysical beliefs are justified in exactly the same way any other belief is justified, or that I have some kind of non-cognitivist theory of metaphysical statements? Like they don't really mean anything, but they're an expression of how I subjectively feel or something. Uh, Would you say the same argument applies
1: there? So the answer is yes, but with some qualifications. And I think it depends a little bit on what kinds of beliefs we're talking about in the category of metaphysical beliefs. Now, on my view, if metaphysics isn't to be utterly disreputable, as it mostly is, It has to be continuous with empirical science, which means by definition, as it were, it's going to have to answer to the regular standards of reasons and evidence. There aren't going to be distinctive metaphysical standards of reasons and evidence that are going to bear on the justification of metaphysical beliefs. Now, obviously, there are philosophers who hold a different view of metaphysics, and I'm less inclined to interpret uh, their discourse in non-cognitive terms, though I think sometimes that is actually warranted. In this regard, I follow Nietzsche, the subject of our earlier discussion. But I'm more inclined, I think, to interpret it in error-theoretic terms. That is, I think they do, in fact, express beliefs, and they tend to express an awful lot of false beliefs. But, of course, the problem case, right, from my view about What's characteristic of religion would be if the metaphysical theory that leads you to certain beliefs that are insulated from reasons and evidence, as reasons and evidence are understood in the sciences, right, also were conjoined with categorical demands on action. And in your particular example, right, one could have a view about the metaphysical status of free will. And that wouldn't necessarily entail any particular view about what it is you had to do. Indeed, depending on the view, it might entail there's no point in having a view about what you ought to do. But that would take us in, I think, in a different direction.
2: So we've raised a couple of possible counterexamples for this view. It seems like one could possibly raise more and you'll have responses to those. But to get back to the question we originally raised, the point of the definition was to help us answer this question of... Is there anything specific to religion that's different from other matters of conscience that particularly merits toleration? Your response to that was no, and I take it that your view is something of the form... Well, if it's the case that what distinguishes religion is the issuing of categorical moral demands and insulation from reasons and evidence there's really no reason to think that I've either of those characteristics particularly ground any special form of toleration. Would that be reasonable to say?
1: Yeah, that is roughly correct. Let me just, on a very minor point of detail, I don't want to say that religion necessarily involves categorical moral demands on action. Because, you know, a lot of the things that religious traditions require aren't obviously within the domain of morality understood in, you know, outside that particular sectarian tradition, right? So wearing certain kind of clothes, right, or um, you know, dressing in a certain way and so on. Um, but yes, yeah, so I argue that there are lots of familiar arguments from the, the moral and political philosophical traditions for liberty of conscience. I take two sort of simple ones that I, I hope are reasonably uncontroversial. The early Rawls's argument about, what kinds of principles of justice people would choose in an original position, and he thinks they would choose principles that protect liberty of conscience. So there's a contractarian argument, but there are also uh, straightforward utilitarian arguments for why you might think protecting liberty of conscience is a good thing. And then what I try to argue is that those particular moral arguments, either the Rawlsian or the utilitarian-style arguments, wouldn't single out religious conscience right, as having special moral weight they give us a moral reason for thinking the law should protect liberty of conscience they give no moral reason for thinking religious conscience is better than than any other kind of conscience. So in a nutshell the best moral arguments for toleration whether the Rawlsian of the Rawlsian kind or the utilitarian kind are not going to single out religion understood in the terms that that we've been discussing.
0: So Martha Nussbaum has argued that perhaps toleration isn't enough. Perhaps the sort of thing we want to expect from each other is more than that, something like respect for other religions. So how do you see that distinction playing out? One thing that jumps to mind about the word toleration is, it sounds like you're, you're tolerating something, you know, you're putting up with something, like, like you don't like it. Right? right.
1: Yeah, so toleration, and I think this is part of what concerns Nussbaum, toleration does have a slightly, by necessity, I think, pejorative connotation to it, okay? That is, what's distinctive of the attitude of toleration is that you disapprove of some beliefs or practices, but you put up with them, and you put up with them not simply because you can't get away with stamping them out. You put up with them because you think there are other moral reasons that you ought to put up with them, and those would be the moral reasons for toleration, whether of the Rawlsian or or utilitarian kind. Now... After I started working on this project, I began reading Nussbaum's work on religious liberty and, of course, I've had the the benefit since of discussing these issues with her. She thinks that at the moral foundation of a principle of religious liberty and liberty of conscience, and in fact, she doesn't disagree with me about the the threshold issue. She thinks the, the moral case is for liberty of conscience, not just liberty of religious conscience. She thinks the right way to think of the moral foundation of the law of religious liberty is in terms of respect for conscience and not merely toleration. Here she is aligning herself with an important tradition of moral thought. Obviously Kant is a predecessor here. This same ideal of respect is embodied in the Universal Declaration for Human Rights. I'm skeptical, though, that if we put pressure on this what notion of respect is at play that we can really make out the case that religious conscience, again, warrants a special kind of respect that other matters of conscience don't. And the difficulty is is there's an ambiguity in the notion of respect, and I think to some extent this ambiguity is replicated in, uh, in Nussbaum's own discussion of it. There's a famous distinction drawn by Steve Darwall many years ago between what he called recognition respect and appraisal respect, meant to capture, right, two senses of respect that are often in play in ordinary life when we talk about respect. So the idea of recognition respect, which would be at play when we say something like you really ought to respect his feelings, okay? The idea of recognition respect is that we have certain moral obligations to people in virtue of their being people. The thing is, recognition respect is really silent on, it's odious on, what those moral obligations are. So one possibility is that we fully discharge our obligation of recognition respect simply through toleration, if that's the only obligation morality imposes on us. So it seems like we, Nussbaum needs some thicker notion of respect here in order to show that there's really a difference between respect and toleration. And Darwall's second sense of respect is what he calls appraisal respect. And this is the sense of respect that comes out when we say things like, I really respect her intellect. That is, you highly appraise something, you highly value it, you admire it. This is what's at issue in in appraisal respect. And it's not clear to me, though, that religion, or indeed, I'll, I'll make a stronger claim, because what Nussbaum says is that what is the object of respect is the faculty of conscience. Every human being has the faculty of conscience, And therefore, that is the capacity for figuring out the meaning of life, how they ought to live, what's important, what's valuable, and that this itself warrants respect. And in particular, I think she's got to say it warrants appraisal respect. And I have to see, I don't find the intuition underlying that very compelling. Right? It seems to me that whether or not an exercise of conscience warrants respect, whether conscience warrants appraisal respect, depends upon how the faculty is actually utilized. And I will give you an example meant to be provocative, but I think it drives home the point. Um, And it's often forgotten. Adolf Hitler was a man of conscience. He was a man of very, very severe conscience. He was not a mere pragmatist. He was very, very principled. Evidence of this? Towards the end of the war, when it would have been extremely useful to have taken the Jews and the Slavs and the other disfavored peoples out of the concentration camps and used them as slave labor to free up Germans to fight, Hitler, on principle and as a matter of conscience, because as a matter of conscience he thought he had to exterminate subhuman people, kept them in the concentration camps, kept them running, didn't utilize them, and as a result didn't have the manpower necessary to sustain the war. It doesn't seem to me the fact that Adolf Hitler had a faculty of conscience is adequate to ground the idea that it should be an object of appraisal respect. Now, happily, most exercises of religious conscience are not as appalling as the Hitler example I just gave. But the question we would have to ask is, Do people who have beliefs insulated from reasons and evidence that they take to impose categorical demands on action, is that category of belief something that should be an object of appraisal respect? And I'm skeptical that we can give an affirmative answer to that question. Sometimes, yes. Sometimes, as I discuss in some of the written work, the religious believers are the only good guys around. Because the funny thing about holding beliefs no matter what, and feeling that they impose categorical demands on your action is that, you know, when the tyrants and the brown shirts are running things, those people are still gonna do what they believe they have to do no matter what. They're not gonna compromise, which is why, you know, if you look at Nazi Germany, you look at apartheid in South Africa, you look at apartheid in the United States, among the most vigorous resistors were certain religious sects. The other group that were the significant resistors tended to be communists. And for not unrelated reasons, right? Because they too took themselves to have be acting on categorical demands of action upon them. I don't think actually that the communism satisfies the first part of the, the definition of religion, but put that to one side. So, without a doubt, religious believers, right, this funny combination of believing things no matter what the evidence is and feeling you've got to do things no matter what the disincentives are, sometimes that turns out to be a spectacularly valuable human psychology. Sometimes it doesn't. And given, as it were, the mixed record, it's hard for me to see how we could support the idea that this form of conscience should be a special object of of appraisal respect.
2: So, the notion of respect that Martha Nussbaum employs is based on this idea of some kind of faculty that we have as human beings to search for meaning in life. And your point is, well maybe we do have such a faculty but it can go really wrong. So just the mere having of it can't be enough to merit this, as you said thicker, more substantial kind of respect. But what about if one raised the following kind of response from the Nussbaum position? Well she invokes the story of Roger Williams, who was involved in the founding of Rhode Island, and he seems to have had a series of experiences with the Native Americans where he discovered that, contrary to his expectations, they were a lot more like him than he thought. It seems like what's happened there in something like that case is that someone has recognized here is an exercise of this faculty that I have. It's quite similar to my exercise of it. These people are going for something like what I'm going for. In a very different way, they have different beliefs. I wouldn't subscribe to their beliefs, but there's a kind of recognition there. So might there not be room for the idea that, well, sure, there can be perversions or breakdowns in this faculty that Nussbaum appeals to, but there's also the possibility of recognising a good use of it that's different from one's own, and that that might be the basis for respect.
1: Mm. Good, I think that's a nice articulation of of what Nussbaum is driving at. So without a doubt, the discovery that other people share a faculty that we have contributes to the sense that we have a common humanity and might well bring us into the domain of something like recognition respect. That is, insofar as we think our humanity gives us some kind of moral entitlements, then people who share it with us have those moral entitlements as well. But I still think that's not quite enough for Nussbaum's thought that there's a difference between mere toleration of religion and respect for religion. Because all the common humanity story gets us is whatever recognition respect requires. And all recognition respect may require is toleration. Now, as I say, there, there is a line of argument to be pursued there, namely that there's something else that recognition respect demands that goes beyond toleration and maybe that conceptual space will get filled by somebody in this dialectic. What I still don't see is how the the common humanity story gets us to the thought that appraisal respect is the relevant moral attitude to have. We all share lots and lots of things, right? People all share a spectacular capacity for self-deception. It's probably a very useful faculty in certain ways, Ought it to be an object of appraisal respect, not obvious. So I don't want to dispute the, the sense of recognizing the common humanity of others tends to press people to think that the, the moral requirements that apply to them in virtue of their humanity have to apply to others, but that isn't going to push us beyond recognition and respect.
0: So it seems like what you've been arguing so far is something like, we can make a case for the idea that we should tolerate the way people think about things in general. But there's less of a case to be made for the idea of specifically tolerating religion qua religion. I'm wondering how that distinction plays out in practice. What would be the difference from a, a legal perspective in according religion special privileges over other matters of conscience?
1: Okay. Good. So, this, uh, this is an important question about the practical import of the argument. If the argument is correct, and putting aside my dispute with Nussbaum about toleration versus respect, she agrees with me that the moral argument is for liberty of conscience, not simply liberty of religious conscience. question is, what, what would that mean for the law in this area? What if, as it were, we stripped away uh, the religion talk from the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and said uh, people are entitled to the free exercise of their conscience? <laughs> okay. and how would that work? So there's two ways we could go here, right? If we agree that religious conscience isn't special, that there's lots of claims of conscience that are just as morally important as claims of religious conscience, we might think, well, then, whenever the law conflicts with a matter of conscience, there ought to be some standards of circumstances when an exemption is given. That's the standard response in the legal context. There are some complications growing out of the 1990 U.S. Supreme Court case, but I think we can put the technical details to one side. The bottom line is, in the states and also at the federal level, there are circumstances where if you have a claim of religious conscience, you can get an exemption from an otherwise generally applicable law. Maybe we should just extend that to any claim of conscience. Now, there are, of course, reasons to be nervous about that. <laughs> one reason to be nervous about that is that it will, it will get the courts... Into the business of evaluating whether somebody's practices or beliefs really are matters of conscience. And that's a bit tricky. One of the things I think the courts like, and they've always been very careful to limit this to matters of religion, is that it's usually easier to figure out whether somebody's part of a religion and what that religion requires than it is to figure out whether they're acting genuinely on conscience. Since after all, a person of conscience can be utterly solitary, right? Think of Thoreau, right? Surely a man of conscience, but not in virtue of being part of a community of established rituals and and so on. So you might think as an epistemic matter, it would be an unreasonable burden to think that there should be general exemptions for all claims of conscience, in which case we could say, let's leave the First Amendment as it is, but not because there's a good moral argument for doing so, but because there's a good pragmatic slash epistemic argument for doing so. Now, the other direction, of course, we could go in, since if we buy that line of argument, it really does entail a fundamental inequality between those whose claims of conscience are religiously based and those whose claims of conscience aren't. They get a special status under law that those who do not have religious claims of conscience, yet genuine claims of conscience, lack. The other possibility, of course, is to think that we should narrow the scope of exemptions quite radically. Now, Nussbaum, of course, raises, I think, an important worry in her book about this route because, without a doubt, laws that get passed are unlikely to conflict with and impose excessive burdens on majority practices for pretty obvious reasons. Okay? Even during Prohibition, the police did not arrest Catholic priests during Communion, <laughs> though they were serving a bit of wide. So the prohibition was, you know, when alcohol was illegal in the United States in the 1920s. So if we went the route of eliminating exemptions from generally applicable laws for any claim of conscience, the burden would undoubtedly fall most upon those whose claims of conscience were in the minority in the society at large. And this seems to me the hard question in this area is how to balance these two kinds of considerations. On the one hand, not saying that claims of religious conscience get a higher status, a higher moral standing than other claims of conscience, but on the other side, not creating a regime in which... Only claims of conscience that are in the minority are going to feel the burden of finding themselves in conflict with what the law requires of them just because laws won't get passed that conflict with the majority's sense of what's morally obligatory, what they, what they have to do. And these are some of the issues I'm going to hopefully grapple with, dare I say resolve, probably not in the book I'm writing on this subject.
0: Brian Leder, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Matt and Mark. Very good questions, as always.
0: To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.